to know how toxic the environment is right now in regards to the news. And I thought I'd start off with a little bit of Britney Spears because I wanted to start the show talking about her, talking about just how smart she is and how she made a very smart decision. I don't know if all of you know, but Britney Spears was actually invited to go down to the house. Uh, Yes, she was. She was invited months ago, well, on December 1st, 2021, she received an invitation from Charlie Christ and Eric Swallowell, (laughs) who I would like to show you and read you the letter they sent this woman, because it's incredible how smart she is. She received this on December 1st, but posted it six days ago. And uh, the letter goes, Dear Miss Spears, congratulations to you and your attorney, Matthew Rosengart, on your historic victories. It goes without saying that we have been following your conservatorship closely, and we were elated that you were able to both remove your father as a years-long conservator in September and finally terminate your conservatorship entirely in November. Your journey towards justice will inspire and empower many others who are improperly improperly silenced by the conservatorship process. Many concerning issues that are commonplace in the guardianship and conservatorship process were brought to light. Especially troubling was news that for years you were unable to hire your own counsel to represent you, uh, to represent your personal and financial interests other issues surrounding the initial petition, the eventual permanence of the conservatorship, and being forced to engage in employment against your will are all equaling concerning. To that end, we wanted to personally invite you and your counsel to meet with us in Congress at a mutually convenient time to describe in your own words how you achieved justice. Interesting. There's no doubt that your story will empower countless others outside the millions that are already inspired by you and your art. Please know that you have absolutely no obligation to do anything more but fight for yourself. 
But if you are willing, we would appreciate learning more about the emotional and financial turmoil you faced within the conservatorship system. Now, she posted that on Instagram, and her post said, I received this letter months ago, an invitation to share my story. I was immediately flattered, and at the time, I wasn't nearly at the healing stage I am now. Number one, I'm grateful that my story was even acknowledged. Because of the letter, I felt heard and like I mattered for the first time in my life. In a world where your own family goes against you, it's actually hard to find people that get it and show empathy. Again, I'm not here to be a victim, although I'm the first to admit I'm pretty messed up by it all. I want to help others in vulnerable situations. Take life by the balls and be brave. I wish I would have been. I was so scared and nothing is worse than your own family doing what they did to me. I'm lucky to have a small circle of adorable friends who I can count on. In the meantime, thank you, Congress, for inviting me to the White House. Um, so it wasn't to the White House, but okay. So that's pretty odd. Maybe there was a phone call that ensued. Um, she actually did a video and I'd like to play that. bizarre, right? It was just a bizarre video that I thought I'd, I'd share. Now, uh, since I shared that, I thought I could share with you the funniest meme I've seen. Please enjoy. For those listening, it's the infamous, no, it's like the funniest. It's not even infamous. The funniest one where Carlton was pretending to sing and dance and then Will Smith walked in on him. Here we go. It's not as you want to go out at a time. When I see you out and about, it's such a crime. If you see me out and about, it's not as you want to go out at a time. I can't. That, that was perfectly done. The faces and everything. I thought I would just break the, um, sad depiction of a very confused Britney Spears. A lot of her videos on Instagram are a little bit bizarre, but I can't blame her. The things that she has been through, we can only imagine. And, you know, it goes back to the conversation that Patrick started, which was interesting, right? How he was saying, yeah, you know, it seems like Hunter Biden and Ashley Biden colluded on dropping off the laptop in the diary. And it's like, mm, my audience knew that, didn't they? Didn't they?
Because even though we think of conservatorship as something that the courts have to implement, I want you guys to think of, of the power um, a family member can have on someone without the courts. Again, many, many, many people, and like Patrick Byrne said yesterday, there are crimes and unspeakable things in that laptop. And many things were deleted, uh, but a lot of things were there. For me, one might say crimes against children. If you have one, it's one too many, so you're good. And it's, uh, and if you have hookers and crack and stuff, there's one too many or the poop picks, like the coprophilia, that's a little bit, uh. but the thing is, you have to think of these people like Hunter Biden and Ashley Biden in the same light you see Britney Spears. It's important to understand that. See, they may not have had a court exercise on them. But they had a whole government system keep keeping them in check. Now, even though uh, the hunter was criminal in the things he did, criminal, disgusting crimes against children, I understand. I want you guys to understand that he was damaged from the youngest age. He was completely damaged from a young age, from the moment his mother and sister were sacrificed and he was there. He was the boy that was in charge of taking all the heat. See, Bo was Biden's star. Bo was going to bring it all home. And they took Bo away from him because he didn't stay in check. I know what other people say, but you know, even cancer can be conveyed per se. So I want you to understand that Bo Biden was the pride and joy of Joe Biden. And there was so much jealousy that resonated through Hunter in the way he spoke of Bo before he died. You get it. Hunter was the kid that nobody paid attention to. Hunter was the kid that his dad relied on and gave all these tasks to because, oh, we can't have Bo do that shit. Bo's going to be president. Look, he's attorney general. He's like in the military and poor Hunter. And look, he's a criminal. He's done crimes and he will pay for them. But I want you to look past that too. I want you to look at it with eyes of one that does not throw stones. I know we can't fathom the crimes committed against children. I understand it. I understand it. There's no excuse. But I do want to let you in to see how this is the same thing as Britney Spears. He was captive captive. He had the responsibility of doing all the dirty work. So Bo remains unscathed. He even tried to join the Navy just to get into Bo's slot, just in case Bo was gone. He was spoiled. Nobody cared for him. Remember Ashley Biden was molested by her own father. Now, 
a lot of people don't even look at that as something. That poor girl was raised in a household. (sighs) You know, this hits a little bit way too close. But she then witnessed the grandkids going through the same. And Hunter witnessed the same. I mean, think about it. What kind of person starts shagging his dead brother's wife and hooks up with her and it's normal, right? I want you to think of that. I, 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 we, they are, you know, Hunter's evil. What he did is inexcusable. Inexcusable. But he's not normal. He wasn't raised normal. Right? He was raised in a family where this is acceptable. He was raised in a family that responded to invitations like the ones you saw on WikiLeaks where they were inviting politicians and advising them how they had, you know, this little girl and that little boy ages nine, six, and five to entertain them in the pool. There's an email that clearly says, like, who puts that in an email? for a bunch of politicians to meet for dinner. It's so bad. So conservatorship is not just that of the court, but it's the hold that someone has on you, right? Someone has on you. I felt like I was in a conservatorship, in a sense, with my employment, right? I um, was not allowed to tell my loved ones or people that I became friends with what I really did. I had to lie to my own family when I had to go places. It had a hold on me. And you know what that hold does? It allows you to let shit slide when they tell you off. So for example, if someone talked to me in a way they shouldn't, I would let it slide because I would say, well, I am lying to them. Well, they don't know what I'm doing and I'm concealing that. So their frustration, their frustration may stem from my, uh, non honesty, right? So we make excuses as to why someone would treat us bad because we are captured by certain circumstances. And the thing is, almost every single one of us is captive of this reality construct that is projected onto you. Sometimes you have to think that no matter what you say, you're considered an outsider if you see it differently. And you realize, you know, is there redemption? Is there not? So as these corrupt tyrants, how did Comey say it? the fabric of society that they have woven, right, was tearing. That's the fabric of society that you are engulfed in. It's been weaved around you. I've said before, time weaving and weaving. It's so important, but you have to understand that if you are the weaver, 
and you weave the lies, you weave the obfuscation, the laws and the statements that you will make as you weave this will take you down because you weaved it. In other words, everybody always pulls their own pants down at some point. So this tangled web of election integrity, right, was actually stitched, knitted, woven right here in the Midwest, in Ohio. This is where it all began. <laughs> One thread is all it needs. Now, for all those out there captive in this reality construct, you know, sometimes you have this urge to fight when you have nothing left in life. Sometimes you get this radical idea and you act, and it's exactly what is needed. It's uh, almost like how Moses said, God told him to do something a little bit nuts. He said, yo, why don't you strike a rock and get some water? And it's like, oh, there it is, water. It's your gut, that untouched personal portion of you, that when it's not polluted by hate and bias, it is righteous and right for the moment you need it. Your gut. Pain isn't supposed to destroy you. Pain should be your place of rain. That is how it is. Because every single hardship, every single storm you go through, it is to refine you. So I thought, speaking of refinement and unusual things, I thought I would first start with um, this simple clip. I think it would be interesting so you can understand, well, no, let's go to Moses. Let's talk about Moses for a second. I want to go to Moses and the Exodus. And it's a story for those that aren't Christian and others that are, you know this story, right? And my fellow Jews, you know this story too. So let's see it unpacked. In an exiled country where they're terribly mistreated. It's a story we've heard over and over again, but hey, the trope had to start somewhere. This time around, we're in the 15th century BCE and the Jewish people are slaves in Egypt. In a journey wrought with daring leadership and difficult turns, the story of the ancient Israelites' escape from slavery is one that turned the descendants of Abraham into a strong nation. It was not easy work, and it took the courage of many unsung heroes to ensure the freedom and success of the Jewish people. But after many highlights and lowlights, from Egypt to Sinai to the land of Canaan, the people of Israel finally journey back to their promised land to carry out their national purpose. Let's start with the beginning with our first hero, Yocheved. That's right, not Moses, but his mother Yocheved. As the Jewish people face slavery and extreme hardships under the bitter rule of Pharaoh, Yocheved takes a huge risk to save her family and the Jewish people. The Pharaoh of the time, possibly Ramses II, who ruled from 1290 to 1223 BCE, decides that the Jewish slaves have become too numerous and mighty and makes a decree to reduce their population. 
sounds uncomfortably familiar. He orders that every Jewish newborn male be immediately killed and cast into the river. Yeah, bleak. Yocheved is a new mother and decides to hide her newborn son to prevent his murder. But after three months, she can no longer hide him quietly. She chooses to risk everything and send her infant down the river in a basket. This act of bravery changes the course of Jewish history and leads us to our next hero, whose name starts with M. No, still not Moses, but rather his sister Miriam. As baby Moses floats down the river in his mother's homemade ark, Miriam quietly watches over him. The baby is finally discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, who takes pity on the child. She lifts him from the river and names him Moses. At once, Miriam takes initiative and reveals herself. She asks if Pharaoh's daughter would like a Hebrew nurse for a child, and when the princess agrees, Miriam brings forth her own mother, Yocheved. Through Miriam's clever stunt, Yocheved can now care for her own son, Moses. Moses grows older and is taken into care by Pharaoh's daughter. He lives in Pharaoh's palace, becoming the Prince of Egypt, played by Val Kilmer, 1998. Highly recommend. But even though Moses is raised as an Egyptian, he still identifies with his Jewish roots and takes pity on his brethren. When he sees an Egyptian strike a Hebrew slave, Moses recognizes his opportunity to act on behalf of the Jewish people and kills the Egyptian. Whether Moses had a sudden revelation about his Jewish identity or had always known he was different from his non-Jewish environment is unclear. What we do know is that his decision to defend a fellow Jew puts his own life in danger, and Moses is forced to flee from Egypt to the distant land of Midian. This one act of courage disrupts Moses' entire life in Egypt and changes the course of his future. When forced to confront the tension between his life as an Egyptian prince and his life as a Jew, Moses makes the choice to defend the latter. Moses sets up shop in Midian, where he marries a woman named Zipporah and has a son named Gershom. The Jewish people are still toiling under the back-breaking labor of Pharaoh, and God has bigger plans for Moses. While Moses is herding his sheep one day, God speaks to him through the flames of a burning bush. It is here that God reveals the larger plan for Moses to return to Egypt and start a revolution, free the Jewish people, and lead them to the promised land in Israel. Well, this incident may sound like every other story of prophecy in the Bible, but it is iconic in Jewish history for a reason. The moment of the burning bush is the start of Moses' blossoming career as the greatest prophet in history. Out of all the prophets, Moses will grow to be the most prominent figure in the Bible. Eventually, he becomes the only person to ever speak with God face to face, and the only one who could speak with God whenever he wanted. And in this moment at the burning bush, Moses begins his journey as the exemplar of Jewish leadership by protesting God's request. Classic Hollywood cliche, I know, the hero refuses his call to action. But Moses first protests, fearing that his speaking disability will hinder the process. God assures Moses that his brother Aaron will come along to do the talking, and Moses finally agrees. He heads back to Egypt with some miracles in his pocket, family on his side. Just like his mother and sister before him, Moses realizes it's up to him to ensure the freedom and the survival of the Jewish people. Moses returns to Egypt, ready to be the hometown hero. At this point, there's a new pharaoh in town, most likely Merneptah, who ruled after Ramses in 1223 BCE. God knows it'll take more than a small miracle to set the Hebrew slaves free, and through Moses, God inflicts ten plagues onto the Egyptian population. But time and again, Pharaoh refuses to let the Jews go. The Jewish people belong to him, and no amount of divine intervention can sway him, even as a civilization suffers massive destruction. That is, until the tenth and final plague, death of the firstborn. Moses warns the Jewish people about the final plague. He tells every family to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on their doorpost as a symbol for God to pass over their homes, which, spoiler, is how the Jewish holiday of Passover got its name. God passes over every marked home, so none of the Jewish firstborns are killed. Pharaoh is not so lucky. 
His son is among the thousands of Egyptians to die. Pharaoh can't take any more, and he finally agrees to let the Jewish people go. The children of Israel flee. But as soon as they leave, surprise, Pharaoh changes his mind again and chases after them. With Egyptian chariots on their heels, the Jewish people come to a dead end at the Sea of Reeds. It's a nail-biting scene. God tells Moses to place his staff over the sea, and suddenly, the waters part. The people cross the 10 miles, yes, 10 miles, it was no walk in the park or so, on foot. And as soon as they reach the shore, they turn around to see the walls of water falling down behind them, drowning Pharaoh's entire army in the sea. The Jewish people have officially made it. They are free from Egypt and destined to travel to the Holy Land. The daring escape story told every year on Passover stops short of the major trials and tribulations in the desert. Moses bravely leads the children of Israel out of slavery and is immediately rewarded with complaints. However, the Jewish people have many reasons to criticize. They had followed Moses into the desert with complete faith, and now they find themselves without any provisions. From bitter water, to lack of water, to lack of food, there is no shortage of grievances. Moses speaks to God, who answers the people with miracles, sending water from rocks and bread from the sky. The journey through the desert is not an easy one, and it's here that we see the Jewish nation start to take form. For three months, the Jewish people travel under Moses' leadership and God's guiding hand. Finally, they reach Mount Sinai, where God fulfills the promise made to Abraham centuries earlier to create a great nation in the land of Israel. God's gift of the Bible at Mount Sinai is both wondrous and terrifying. God tells the people to purify and cleanse themselves in preparation and that no one should touch the mountain lest they die. On the third day, God descends over the mountain with thunder, lightning, and smoke. The sound of a ram's horn grows louder as the nation approaches the base of the mountain. Finally, God speaks to the Jewish people directly and gives them the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel are eager to receive the commandments, accepting all terms and conditions before even reading the contract or consulting any appropriate legal advice, which is definitely not something any of us have ever tried. But they can't handle God's presence, which is too awesome and powerful for most humans to handle. So instead, they send Moses up the mountain to receive the laws himself. When Moses returns back down the mountain, he finds the people worshipping a pagan god in the form of a golden calf. Much like my hair when I step outside on a hot and humid day, the Jewish people turn from pure holiness to complete embarrassment. Seeing that his people are clearly not ready, Moses throws down the two tablets in his hand, shattering the holy words of God into pieces. But once again, Moses defends the people. He sets back up the mountain to ask God for forgiveness and repeat the entire process over again. The people accept these new tablets, along with the full 613 commandments. All at once, they receive a prophecy of their mission to serve God, to serve man, and to be a light unto the nations. Thus, the children of Israel finally become the chosen people. Establishing themselves as the first monotheistic religion, they accept the Bible as instruction for living a meaningful and ethical life. Moses later becomes known in Jewish custom as Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, forever commemorated as the ultimate educator of Jewish values and traditions. We're finally at the apex of the story, right? The Jews have been freed, have received the Bible from God, and are officially a nation on its way to Israel. This is all true, with the addition of a slight detour in the desert for 40 years. Why? Why indeed. Well, with Moses now in his early 80s, he is preparing the people for the Holy Land they're about to conquer. He sends spies into Canaan to scope out the country and pump up the people for a land flowing with milk and honey. But the spies return with a negative report. They say the land is filled with enemies and giants and is too dangerous to conquer. The people complain once again, begging God to let them return to Egypt. Yes, the torture and throw your sons into the river Egypt. Two brave souls step up among the spies, Joshua and Caleb. 
They try to convince the people that God will help them prevail. But the damage is done, and God sentences the nation of Israel to wander the desert for 40 years. Now, only the next generation will earn entrance to the promised land, while the current generation is forced to live out the remainder of their lives in the desert. Journeying through the desert for 40 years might sound terrible. And in some ways it is. There are amazing miracles and spiritual highs, a profound closeness with God. But there are also many challenges. As harsh as it might sound, the journey through the desert helps shape the Jewish people into a nation, giving them a spiritual focus that prepared them for the promised land. Moses continues to prepare the people, passing down the laws of the Bible and training his successor Joshua to lead them. Yet, as Moses' narrative reaches its finale, we're left with a painful twist ending to our Hollywood story of slaves to fame. Here, God commands Moses to speak to a rock and provide water for the people. Instead, Moses hits the rock. Commentaries abound to the nature of the sin. What we do know for sure is that God responds by denying Moses the right to enter the promised land himself. Just as God needed a new generation of Jewish people to enter the land of Israel, so too was a new leader needed to guide them there. God promises to show him the land from afar, but Moses does not live to see the children of Israel enter the land of Israel. Moses dies at the ripe old age of 120. To this day, Jewish people wish that number onto others as a prayer for long life. But even though Moses' story ends, the story of the Jewish people is just beginning. The rallying cry of the generation in Egypt continues for generations afterwards, as both Jews and non-Jews sing out, Let my people go. From Egypt to Queen Esther to Judah the Maccabee, all the way to Martin Luther King Jr., Moses has inspired oppressed people throughout the centuries in what was, perhaps, the world's first liberation movement. Through Moses' leadership, the children of Israel are now entering the Promised Land as a force. They have endured years of hardship in the wilderness, transitioning out of the psychological shackles of servitude in Egypt and into a resilient and fortified nation. After 40 years of ups and downs and twists of fate, the Jewish people are ready to enter the Promised Land to create a unique national existence that will influence the history of mankind. If you like this video, make sure to check out these other ones that we made. Let my people go. It talks about, you know, oppression and servitude. We, the people of the United States, are pretty much in the same position. Only thing is no one's whipping us. Instead, they're milking us dry. They have us consume their goods while they consume us. But see, the thing is, who's Moses? Okay, they tell you who went in a basket, he was raised as a prince, but who was he really? Because, you know, a lot of people, I, I hear it all the time, all the time, all the time. I can't do that. I'm unable to do that. I can't do this. I, you know, I, one person said, you know, I was going to run for um, my city council, but when I was 19, I stole a few cars and, you know, ran with the wrong crowd, got into drugs, but I cleaned myself up at about 30. And now I work as a painter. I have my own business. I just, I just can't. People start calling me an ex-drug addict because it's heroin. So I'm always talking about getting clean. Huh? That means nothing. Own it. Your turmoil and your hardships throughout your life, your story is you. Your story is you.
I had one woman from one of our state groups who uh, wanted to run for her school board. So she put together to get signatures when other women said to her, you were getting beaten by your husband. Everybody knew black eyes. Your kids were always scared of people. I mean, you stayed there while he beat you. Why would anyone vote for you to make decisions for their kids when you couldn't even make a decision for yourself? You see, people are mean, people are nasty. And so this woman decided not to run because her children were in middle school and she didn't want that out there. And it's a small community. People who run for office think that they're righteous because they usually have the money to cover up their dirty deeds or they have enough money to squash you. Enough money to squash you. Therefore, average people like you can't rise up. Hence, the ongoing slavery with unseen chains that you are bound to. Now, I found this video. Don't agree with everything. But this video talks about things that nobody talks about, about Moses and who he really was. Because a lot of people like to think that, you know, Everyone was righteous when the one thing we do know is that the people that even spread Jesus's word were completely unrighteous. They were the ones that decided to walk away from their evil ways, walk away from all the things they did so they can redeem themselves in his name. And so when Moses made that decision, he was attempting to redeem himself too. It's like the story of the prodigal son, two sons, one took his inherit, you know, all his inheritance, whatever fortune ran off, pissed it away in hookers and wine. The other son got married, had his own flock, you know, was, you know, tending to his sheep, taking care of his father and his mother, everything. And then one day the loser son, his brother turns up. And the father says, quickly, slaughter the best lamb you have. We will have a feast. My son has returned home. So let's talk about Moses a little bit. More to Moses than the Ten Commandments, and a lot of it is incredibly strange. If all you know about God's number one boy is Prince of Egypt or Charlton Heston in a wig, here are some lesser known facts about Moses. One of the most famous stories of Moses deals with his birth and how he escaped execution at the hands of a murder-happy pharaoh who was trying to reduce the Jewish population in Egypt. Moses' mother put the infant in a basket floating down the Nile, where he was ironically rescued and subsequently raised by the pharaoh's daughter. According to the book of Exodus, pharaoh's daughter named him Moses from the Hebrew word Masha, meaning to draw out because she drew him out of the water. Because I drew you from the water, you shall be called Moses. Moses, Moses. Now, if you're asking yourself why an Egyptian princess would give a mysterious river baby a Hebrew name, you're not alone. Most modern scholars suggest that Moses' name is probably of Egyptian origin, but Exodus includes a folk etymology to downplay the Egyptian background of the Hebrew hero. While no definitive origin for the name Moses has ever been determined, theories about the name include it coming from an Egyptian word meaning son of, while the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria connected it to the Egyptian word for water. 
Other theories range from the princess giving him a Hebrew name because she saw the baby was circumcised to Moses' own mother actually recommending the name when she worked for the princess as a nurse. The canonical scriptures skip from Moses' infancy to his young adulthood, leaving a lot of gaps concerning his life at the Pharaoh's palace to be filled in by popular imagination. The Jewish Encyclopedia records one of the best-known legends of the child Moses, which involves him snatching Pharaoh's crown. According to the legend, three-year-old Moses is sitting at the dinner table when he grabs the Pharaoh's crown and puts it on his own head. The Pharaoh's soothsayer worries that this is a sign that the child is the prophesied future liberator of the Jews in Egypt. Fortunately for young Moses, one of Pharaoh's counselors is actually the angel Gabriel in disguise, looking out for God's favorite boy. The secret angel proposes a test, then sets out a piece of gold as well as a live coal in front of Moses to see which one he grabs, with the understanding that a hero of destiny and greatness would surely grab the gold. To make sure that won't happen, Gabriel supernaturally guides a child's hand to the coal. Being a baby, Moses obviously puts the burning coal in his mouth. Pharaoh's mind is set at ease that a prophesied hero would never do anything that dumb, and Moses' life is saved. Your familiarity with the life of Moses may mostly consist of the trip down the river and the parting of the Red Sea. What you may not remember, however, is that the inciting incident of Moses' role as prophet and deliverer of the people of Israel was a murder. Well, maybe a manslaughter, but either way, he killed a dude. In chapter 2 of Exodus, the young adult Moses witnesses an Egyptian overseer beating a Hebrew slave. Thinking no one can see him, Moses kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. The movie Prince of Egypt makes this look like an accident, but it was definitely premeditated. Later on, when Moses tries to stop a fight between two Hebrews, one of them mentions the killing. At that point, Moses knows the jig is up and books it out of Egypt and toward Midian. In chapter 4 of Exodus, when the fugitive Moses encounters God in disguise as a shrubbery, he receives his call to action to become the great deliverer and lawgiver of the Israelite people. However, like any good hero, Moses tries to refuse this call, specifically noting that he's a bad choice because he's, quote, heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. Much debate has ensued about what this description literally means, but the traditional explanation is that Moses had a speech disorder, most often understood to be stuttering. And you shall free my people from Egypt. Why me? A man clumsy with words. According to some, this stutter was the result of baby Moses putting that coal in his mouth. But it has also been suggested that God specifically chose someone with a disability to be a spokesman so that all the glory would go to God and not to his human representative. Sigmund Freud, on the other hand, thought maybe the boy raised in Pharaoh's household couldn't speak Hebrew at all, while others theorized that he spoke with a heavy Egyptian accent or simply spoke slowly. The most popular explanation, however, is the stutter, with various other verses used to back this up. God helps Moses get over his hesitation by telling him his brother Aaron can do the actual talking part. One of the strangest and most confusing incidents in the Bible occurs in chapter 4 of Exodus, when Moses is on his way back from Midian to Egypt with his wife Zipporah and their son in tow. While Moses and his family stop at an inn, God tries to kill Moses, probably. These three bewildering verses contain a bit of pronoun trouble. Someone definitely tries to kill someone, and God trying to kill off Moses makes the most contextual sense. Anyway, Zipporah stops God from killing her husband by cutting off their son's foreskin with a rock and throwing it at God's feet, and then tossing out an amazing one-liner, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood. The traditional understanding is that God was angry at Moses for not circumcising his son according to God's covenant with Israel. In this regard, Zipporah's quick and dirty bris saved Moses' life, but her bloody bridegroom quip is still hard to parse. Still, hard to ask much more of your wife than that. Who makes you happy? You know. Moses is the most important prophet in Judaism, and overall one of the most important dudes in all of the Bible. However, most modern biblical scholars say that the Torah wasn't actually written by Moses, or by any single person for that matter. 
Instead, they say it's a composite of multiple documents that were edited together. And in the earliest of these documents, it seems like Moses' role was even more prominent and had to actually be toned down by communities who liked Moses' brother, Aaron, better. He's my brother. Moses! According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, in the earliest sources for the Torah, Moses did everything, and the only mention of Aaron was when he built the golden calf for the Israelites. The reason for this seems to be that the earliest sources were written by Moses' fans, while later documents were written by those partial to Aaron, who featured him much more as Moses' helper and spokesman, as well as softening his culpability in the golden calf incident. Aaron's main role in tradition is that of the first high priest, which attributes to 90% of Aaron's references in the Bible. One of the things that most distinguishes Moses from other prophets is the personal nature of his relationship with God. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy says, No prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. According to the book of Exodus, this isn't a metaphor. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them the law from Mount Sinai, he and God would hang out and chat. Exodus chapter 33 says, The Lord spoke to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. It seems God was disguising himself in these instances, however, because Moses asked to see God's full glory. And even though God says no man can see God and live, he figures out a compromise for his best bro. God agrees to reveal his full glory to Moses in order to encourage and reward him. But since the unvarnished image of God is deadly to the human mind, God says that Moses would have to stand in the corner facing the wall. And after God walked by, Moses could turn around and look at God's back. According to Exodus chapter 34, Moses' constant close proximity to the face of God had an unintended consequence on the prophet. His face became so radiant that you might even say it glowed, and this change actually made some people for hundreds of years think that Moses had horns. According to Haaretz, the Hebrew word for ray of light can also mean horn, so it's possible to interpret Moses' shiny face as a horned one if you take the less contextually appropriate translation, which unfortunately it was when St. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. European Christians used this version until basically the Protestant Reformation, with the most notable cultural consequence of this being Michelangelo's famous sculpture of Moses in Rome's Basilica of St. Peter in Chains, which prominently features two horns on Moses' brow, perplexing thousands of modern tourists daily. One of Moses' most famous roles is as the liberator of the Jewish people, leading them out of Egypt, through 40 years of wandering the desert and into a land of milk and honey promised to them by God. As such, it might surprise people not deeply familiar with the story of the Torah that Moses himself never actually made it to the Promised Land. Of course, the walk from Egypt to Canaan is definitely not 40 years long. What happened is that when the Israelites got to the Promised Land, Moses' advanced scouts reported that the land was full of giants, which made the people too scared to enter. We have new laws preparing us for the Promised Land. If we are true to God, he will keep his promise. For their lack of faith, God cursed them to wander until that entire generation had died in hopes that the next generation would be more faithful. Once that time had passed, however, Moses found out that God wasn't going to allow him to enter Canaan himself. Instead, he died on a mountain within eyeshot of the promised land at the age of 120, and God himself buried him in a mystery grave. As pretty much the main dude of Judaism, naturally, there's more stories about Moses than most other prominent figures from the Hebrew scriptures. The incident of Moses' death is no exception to this trend. However, there is an apocryphal book that might shine a supernatural light on the mystery of what really happened to Moses. The Assumption of Moses is a story so crazy that it didn't make it into the Bible. The story goes that God hid Moses' body so that the idol-prone Israelites wouldn't begin worshipping their leader's corpse the way they had the golden calf. Satan, on the other hand, thought this would be hilarious, so he tried to steal Moses' body. 
God, however, had placed the archangel Michael as the guardian of Moses' grave, and when the devil tried to uncover the body, Michael rebuked him, forcing him to flee. Unfortunately, as interesting as this story sounds, we don't have much more information on this divine tug of war over Moses' corpse. It's generally understood that the oldest alphabet we can verify the existence of is the Phoenician alphabet. For some Greco-Jewish historians, however, it's obviously Moses who invented the alphabet and then passed his version on to the Phoenicians. According to the Jewish Virtual Library, a widely quoted fragment by the historian Eupolemus claims, Moses was the first wise man, the first who imparted the alphabet to the Jews. The Phoenicians received it from the Jews and the Greeks from the Phoenicians. Also, laws were first written by Moses for the Jews. Inventing the idea of letters and the very concept of law is pretty big. The historian Artapanos went a step further, claiming Moses was the figure known to the Greeks as Musias, the teacher of the great musician Orpheus. And oh yeah, he was also the deity known to the Greeks as Hermes and the Egyptians as Tote, the legendary figure who taught the alphabet, science, and mathematics to humankind. So he's kind of a big deal. Despite Moses' role in the development of three different major world religions, most modern scholars generally reject his literal existence as a historical person, though many accept that the legend of Moses may be based on certain details from the life of a Moses-like historical person. One reason that Moses is considered to be more legend than fact is that some details of his life can be seen echoed in the stories of a number of other legendary figures. The most prominent of these repeated motifs is the story of the baby Moses being rescued from the river. According to the Ancient History Encyclopedia, the Mesopotamian king Sargon of Akkad wrote a fiction-heavy autobiography in which he related that he was born the illegitimate child of a priestess who sent baby Sargon in a basket down the Euphrates River, where he was rescued and eventually became a conquering king. Likewise, the story of the Hindu hero Karna and even the Greek story of Oedipus follow the same basic pattern. Hey, if you're gonna plagiarize, why not steal from the greatest story ever told? Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more grunge videos about your favorite biblical figures are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube So, I thought I should show this. Not because it was extremely confusing for many and contradicting many things that many have been taught over time. But to show that, indeed, like he said at the end, which was the most important, lots of stories of kings have emulated the same story of Moses, which means that even that is skewed. I've said it many times, man-made things are always through one's perspective. I believe that, uh, you know, people that wear pink tops should always wear brown shoes, right? I think that's pretty. Therefore, I will write it. When I was younger, I conducted an experiment. <laughs> I think I've mentioned this before. Or did I say it as a hypothetical? But I have. Somewhere on this planet, because I visited many places, and I may have given that away, I created a time capsule. In there, I wrote a fictional story of what time was like that day. It was complete rubbish dogs being in charge, cats talking, you know, lots of bullshit. Now in that, in the back, I said, well, now you found this. This is the way I tell the story of today. I don't know when you will find it. I could have indeed believed that that is what today was. And the minute you find it at 10, 20, 100, 1,000 years from now, you might take that as gospel and say, hey, that's exactly what happened. 
but I left the disclosure at the end. A disclosure that don't believe everything you find. Because those that are in power write your history. Those that are in power write your present. But those that are visionaries and those that wish for the future are the ones that paint it. See, there was this, um, there was this, I put this graphic on Instagram with President Trump. And oh, it was Winston Churchill's chair that he sat in. History may write about Trump and what he has done. You're writing history as it is. Lots of people will write history about you. But along the lines of what Winston Churchill had said in that, and that's why I wrote that quote, is that he intends to write history. And that's exactly what President Trump did. And that is exactly what every single one of us are doing. We have decided to write history relentlessly, regardless of how many times they push us down and tell us to stop relentlessly. We are writing history. Now let's take a quick break. Trust in who you are And nothing else 
iconic song, pretty fitting for now, because all of us are kind of in these days of, where are we now? We are going through so much confusion. This is indeed the land of confusion. How do we discern? How do we know? I mean, today, all I saw in the chat was about 22222. Come on, seriously. Is that what's important right now? That's what is important right now? This is what we're focusing on? Yes, there's some significance, and we'll talk about it. But don't go down rabbit holes. Those are all distractions. You have to wonder, why are all these people suddenly on board with that and telling you all these things? Hmm. Unless you're an astrologer or watch, you know, your horoscopes all the time. Cause I do that. I do that. And I think whatever FBI agent is tasked to watch what I watch, they're just like, damn, she just puts on Pisces and lets it roll all night. That's how I mess up their algorithm. Sometimes I'll even put things like Simpsons. I'll just let it run to just mess with the algorithm. But again, yes. Oh, it was on July 4th, 1776. Stop. 
Stop it. Really stop it. How many times have we talked, have, have we talked about the calendar having been changed? How many times, how many, think of it. Every single one of you have thought, oh, you know, every year we lose a quarter of a day. Every year, an inch of the Atlantic Ocean gets away. Like there's so many changes. And yet here we are, <laughs> here we are, right? Pinging back, focusing on things. <sighs> Today was indeed a, a bizarre day. There have been energy shifts. There have been um, a lot of things happening. But like I said, every single thing you weave is almost like the saying, make your bed now lie in it. Well, they weaved intricate stories. They weaved everything. And here they are. I mean, you all think that we're entering into spring. Stop. Uh, the only way that you can see clear is to momentarily, if you can, let go of all the pre-convictions you have, all the notions you assume, all the things that you assume are true and valid, and suddenly everything makes sense. Just let it go. Can you change what happened just a second ago? No. Do you have control of what happens in the next second? Yes. This is where you need to focus on the now. What are you doing right now? How are you doing things right now? This is what you need to focus on. Because here is exactly what's going on. They got to know at some point. Who? Who? The, uh, you know, the, 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 the public. They got to know. Yes. Stan, get with us. Who killed Kennedy? I read the first draft of the Warren Report. It says he was killed by a drunk driver. You watch the go for. What do you see day after day? The one smart bomb falling down a chimney. The truth? I was in the building when we shot that shot. We shot it in a studio, Falls Church, Virginia, one-tenth scale model of a building. Is that true? How the fuck do we know? You take my point? Yes. All right. Okay. And you want me to do what? We want you to produce. You want me to produce your war? Not a war. It's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. We need, you know, it's a pageant. It's like the Oscars. That's why we came to you. I never won an Oscar. And it's a damn shame you didn't, but you produced the Oscars. Yes, indeed I did. You know, you're a writer. That's your script. You're a director. But if you're the producer, what did you do? See, nobody knows what you do. The producer, I mean, all he's got is the credit. You see, it, it, uh, some plaques on the wall. They don't know what we do. Stan. I don't, don't get me started. Stan. Yes. If you never won an Oscar... How would you like an ambassadorship? An ambassadorship? Yeah. That's my payoff. Well, you tell me what you want. Hell, I just do it for the fun of it. For a story to tell. Oh, no, you couldn't tell anybody. Oh, hey, listen, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, you couldn't tell anybody. No, 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 I know. It's just a figure of speech. No, no, no. It's just a, it's a, it's, it's a pageant. It's a pageant. That's what it is. Countries of war. It's Miss America in your bird parks. Why Albanian? Because, well, they have to have something we want. Well, I'm sure they do. What do we have that they want? A little freedom? Well, why would they want that? Oppressing? No, 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 no. Fuck freedom. They want to they wanna destroy the godless Satan of the United. They want to destroy our way of life. All right? Okay, okay, okay. The president is in China. He is dealing with the dispatch of the B-3 bomber to Albania. 
What? Help me. Well, I mean, what uh, he with us? Well, all right, all right. Uh, let's see. Geopolitically, um, if you. We just found out they have the bomb. That's... We just found out they have the bomb. That's good. Yeah. And and no 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 wait a second wait 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 no wait a second wait 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 no no the bomb's not there because. Uh, uh, they, they'd have to have a rocket and that shit, right? And they're, they're, they are a bunch of wogs. No, no, no. Cross out. All right. So it's a suitcase bomb. I didn't even know I said that. <laughs> it's a suitcase bomb. You don't need missiles. You can put a bomb in a suitcase, right? Mm -hmm. It's a suitcase bomb. Mm -hmm. yeah, suitcase, that's good. That's a suitcase bomb? Yes. It's a suitcase bomb. When it's cooking, it's cooking. We're cooking, and it's in, it's in, it's in Canada, right? Albanian terrorists have placed a suitcase bomb in Canada in an attempt to infiltrate the bomb into the USA. Oh, that's good. That's huh? good. That's good. That's terrific. And I'll tell you why it is cost effective. Well, it's producing. That's what it is. No, it's pretty great. Oh, listen, I can tell you stories. Cecil B. See, I could tell you stories. Scripts. See, this is why the documentary uh, Enjoy the Show is so important. I know it's delayed and you know, it's, it's incredible because now, uh, you know, the people that are stitching it together for me understand why it's so important. Can you see the orchestra, a symphony of lies with multiple nations and all these nice performers and, you know, <laughs> assets. A symphony of lies. So weird. Symphony of lies. So, as we know, they tell you that there is war. Oh, they're coming in. I think I actually gave away what the real deal was yesterday, if you were paying attention. But let's go along and see what one of your primary red carpet performers have to say about this. And this time, as you listen to them, please, please pay attention to what they're telling you. It's very important you pay attention to every single thing they're telling you. See what the script is on the uh, politics of this for for people who uh, bemoaned uh, what they believed was the abdication of American leadership on the world stage in the last administration and cheered when President Biden said America is back for that first year uh, of his presidency. He says now this is what the cost can be, saying that defending freedom will have a cost. It comes at a time when the practical cost for a lot of people in this country uh, is is stressful. Right. And he, you know, he did say that. He didn't go into specifics. I don't think this was a speech he wanted to do that in. But he did say, look, I care that Americans don't suffer as a result of this. Uh, we have to protect our consumer, for example, from rising uh, prices at the at the pump. But what really struck me was the president's tone and the president's language here. This really was the language of war, I think. He called uh, Putin's speech a twisted rewrite of history, saying there is no doubt 
uh, no question that Russia is the aggressor. And uh, it's very clear that the point he was trying to make today is the one thing Vladimir Putin did not expect is that American allies would work in unison. And he also made it very clear that this is the first tranche, as he said, and you've all spoken about what that contains. There is more coming. I don't think he wanted to lift the veil on that completely. But I think the seriousness of the situation uh, was something you could see in the president's face and you can see in his language. Uh, when he spoke about there's no justification for this, Russia bears the full responsibility and it, trying to get Americans to understand about the cost of defending freedom, which has always been a theme uh, for Joe Biden. Um, and now and now here it is. Didn't take questions, walked off the stage curtly, uh, talking to the allies. And I think we're going to see this unfold in real time in the hours to come as there are more sanctions, if uh, Putin doesn't change his mind, which nobody predicts, of course, that he will. Yeah, I was struck by the language, too. It was quintessential, Biden, I thought, when he said, yeah. who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the authority to declare, you know, this of his independent neighbors? I mean, that was, I thought, pretty Biden-esque. Yeah. Uh, Clarissa, how do you... So I'm going to take you back in time quickly before we continue. Do you guys remember the whole walkthrough I did of Crimea and how BuzzFeed desperately tried to show that they were taken over? And Putin rode in on Harley motorcycles and all of them were like, yeah, man, we don't need, you know, the European Union and NATO. <laughs> Fuck that. You remember that? You remember that? You do, right? Because you're watching the same damn play. See, when you have weak leaders that are trying to negotiate with strong leaders, they lose territory. Now, I'm all for a very strong nation, but I am also for freedom. And in 2014, they negotiated, we take Ukraine hold and you'll take Crimea. So we don't have a war because we will go nuclear. You remember that? Well, now it's 2022. Same losers in office. Obama. <laughs> now it's Biden. Shut up. It's Obama in the basement. Same deal, but this time too much of a loser to even win. Too much hanging over the head. Russia will write off all of Ukraine's debt. They will stick their middle finger up to Germany and say, well, then we'll take Turkey, too, and you'll have no gas now. How's that for the old guard? How's that for the crowns? How's that for the new world order? How's that for all those sexy elites? You know, China had a very big problem with Germany. Germany almost infiltrated. They, they, they amplified the CCP. See, a lot of people don't talk about the German influence to the CCP, but I will. And so we see that suddenly <laughs> with Ukraine liberated and owning back their natural gas pockets that are the most massive ones on the European continent, 
And Putin having control of Nord Stream 2, killing the project in the Mediterranean, having a foothold on Turkey. Looks like that old guard, that queen, the Roman center is about to go crumble, crumble, crumble. You think the President Biden's words will be received now in Kiev and beyond? Well, I think in Kiev there will be a sense of appreciation. These are robust sanctions um, and robust rhetoric, and that's what they want to hear. So there will be a degree of, of, of gratitude. But I think there is a real sense at the moment that no matter what sanctions were announced, that is not going to necessarily deter President Putin from his current course of action. And so I guess the question becomes for people here, is there still... Uh, an opportunity to de-escalate? Is there an off-ramp for President Putin? What would that look like? Before, behind closed doors, people had talked about, well, maybe Ukraine would be forced to implement the Minsk agreements, which were traditionally seen as being in favor of Russia. Well, now Minsk is completely off the table. We know that the issue of NATO's open door policy is off the table. And so you start scratching your head and asking yourself, is there anything left that could be done to try to forge ahead a diplomatic path. And, and, and maybe it's not just coming to me right now, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head, which then leads me to go back to that line that President Biden said uh, during his announcement just now, where he talked about them setting up a rationale to take more territory by force. And of course, as President Putin had earlier said, talking about those two breakaway separatist republics and recognizing them by their own self-declared uh, borders, which... Yeah, you know, it's like... Biden said such strong words, didn't he? Really? Who in the Lord's name? Putin doesn't need a ramp, an off-ramp. He makes his own ramps. See, this is what happens when you have a president that can't tie a shoe. This is what happens when you lose control and you're corrupt. This is what happens when people plan. Good people plan. And they collect and they collect and they collect. And then suddenly they cash in. See, that's what happens. Because right now what you're watching is uh, really something like this scene. Let's see. Where is it? This is the scene you're seeing now. Oh, so desperate and so bad. They can't even act. It's so bad. It is so bad. Here we go. Let's keep working, people. Are we getting there? Okay, good. Put the put the village behind her. Give me some flames. How about some screaming? Screaming's good. Some sound of screaming. Well, you know, it might be good as uh, ooh signs. What the hell is ooh You know, ooh ah, Anne Frank. Oh, okay, that's good, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh. Find us the uh, Anne Frank signs. Ooh, that's chilling. Give me goosebumps. Find us the ooh Hello? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, uh, yeah, we're going to be back in Washington when? We'll be back tonight. Tonight is... It seems that Senator Neal has discovered something. Well, it makes no difference about Senator Neal. Uh, I don't care what Senator Neal's got. We got a war. 
Look at that girl. Doesn't she look Albanian? She looks like she was born and raised in Albania. Mm-hmm. Have an instinct for casting. Don't ask me more. Okay, we're going to do it again, sweetie. What's her name? Stacy? Tracy. Tracy. Uh, one more time, Tracy. You're doing fine. You're doing fine. Could she be running across a bridge? She's running across a burning bridge. That's good. That's beautiful. Of course, we'll need some water. Oh, is it a stream? No, I think... Uh, a pond? No, I think... Uh, I think it's a calico kitten. She's running across with the kitten. Can we have a calico kitten? Please? Floyd, Floyd, punch in a calico kitten. I have 19 screens here. I can't see one calico kitten. The thinking is, as of this moment, a small calico kitten, sir. Calico kitten. Okay. Here it is. We have a we have a small calico kitten, sir. Calico. The president wants a white one. He, he wants a white one. A white. Let me talk. He's mobilizing the sixth fleet. Connie, can I please talk to him? He's mobilizing the sixth fleet. Why well, I hate it when they start to meddle. Can we have a white one, please? He wants a white one. Are we ready yet? How, how soon do you think we'll be able to get this cut? Oh, we're going to be done in about four or five hours. Oh, that's good. We can link that to the press. They can downlink it on Telstar 401 Transporter 21. Makes you glad you've lived this long. And this just in, a Newsbreak special report from the Albanian front. We've just received information that the young Albanian national fleeing in this video is attempting to escape terrorist reprisals in her village. America has seldom witnessed a more poignant picture of the human race than that which armed Fantastic. Great. That was good. They used the same process with the last Schwarzenegger movie. Fantastic. Isn't that amazing how they did that? And you know yeah. what? Conrad, this is only the beginning. Where, where do we get the song? Then you have the song, the image, the uh, merchandising tie-ins. You know, this is only the beginning. We were right. Ah, uh, you're the man. Oh, uh, you're the man. To the beginning. 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 Oh, got your car. So you just saw a war production. How interesting is that, isn't it? Now, someone remembered that I had mentioned that Robert De Niro was part of the information warfare base that I was at. He actually went there, served, and once he finished his training, he was pulled out for non-uniform duty. Now, some people rumored that he was kicked out for smoking weed. That's the going rumor, huh? Because you're not supposed to say, hey, a bunch of people came and said, I believe that um, you will suit your nation and do better outside of uniform. See, <laughs> you know how that works? Yeah, he was at Quarry Station, Pensacola, Florida. I'm just saying. It's, it's, it's just so important. And you know, what's funny is that he played in that film. He knows exactly how true it is. And it's almost like, God, people are so dumb, right? So dumb. So I just thought I would show you that while I show you live from Ukraine, what's really going on. Would you like to see that? Because here's a dude in Ukraine telling you of what he thinks is going on. Let's go. That in the next few years, there'll be so many ethnic mainland Chinese people that they will vote for Hong Kong to go back to mainland China. Mainland China will give them 
probably money or bribe them with things to make them legally vote for it. That is basically what happens in these areas such as Crimea or Transnistria. So if you want answers for what's happening today, you always have to look back in history. This is from six hours ago in Ukraine. So this is Ukraine. This is the street. There's some hot wine over there. Uh, it's a, it's very normal lifestyle, right? This is one of these good stores here for souvenirs. We can buy traditional Ukrainian clothing. All right. So what's actually happening then in Donetsk? Basically for the last, what, seven, eight years now? So 2014, there was a big conflict with Russia. Russia took Crimea. That sucked for Ukraine. Ukrainians are very upset about that. And it was very unfair, but they did it in a semi-legal way where it wasn't technically war. It was an annexation of of Crimea to save the ethnic speaking, uh, you know, Russians in Crimea from, from Ukraine, supposedly. Now they're basically doing the same, same exact same game plan, right? Like, I don't know if you guys watch NFL or football, but they're basically pulling the exact same game plan with Donetsk. They're like, okay, now, uh, you know, the, the people in Donetsk, you know, do you guys, you know, do you guys want our protection? We're going to send in our legal peacekeepers, which happen to be tanks, and we're going to go and save the people in Donetsk. And the problem is, most of the people there, I mean, you never hear from them. Like, you never hear from them in the news what they want, because a lot of them would probably say that they want to be part of Russia. Why? Because they're probably ethnic, you know, Russians who speak Russian. They have more ties to Russia. Uh, they would rather have the higher Russian pension, cheaper gas prices, you know, higher minimum wage. Which, if you're a poor person from that area that isn't getting adequate electricity and heating and water and gas, and you're tired of this war, you'd probably also say, yeah, Russia, please, I, like, just come, you know, I'll, I'll come join you, right? So that's the problem. And that's why it's, it's so complicated where it's unfair to the people who live there. But Putin's very smart, right? Like he might be evil, he might be bad guy, right? But he is a smart, calculated guy and you can't underestimate him. So right now, basically what had happened was Putin wasn't getting what he wanted from the West. Uh, there's been no talks about, you know, about Ukraine never joining NATO, right? Because we've got to rewind to the last video what Putin actually wants. Ideally, he would love to expand Russia and kind of get some of the glory back of the former USSR. He knows that he's not getting that. Uh, Ukraine has become less and less pro-Russian since 2014 and more pro-West, especially with the current president, Zelensky. So Putin says, okay, how about this? Stop encroaching in, into Eastern Ukraine 
keep NATO, the, you know, where it is, but let's not like come any closer because if Ukraine joins NATO, it'll be right on the doorstep. And Putin and Russia does not want that because he's afraid of the security. So Neil W says, hello from Canada. I've been watching mainstream media on the topic because I don't trust them. You know what? I also don't trust them. But the thing is, we need to get our news from somewhere, right? And not every, not one person has all the answers. So this is what I would recommend, and this is what I personally do, is first try to get it from the horse's mouth, right? So this whole thing about the talk that, uh, that Putin had, where he basically said he wanted to uh, legally <clears throat> acknowledge the separation of, of of Donbass. How many people just saw a clip on mainstream news where it was probably translated in English, maybe didn't even show him talking, or maybe just showed that little clip, and how many of you actually watched his talk? Because in his talk, which is like an hour and a half, there's a lot of you know facts in there that you need to like to listen to to understand, all right? Uh, Scott works asked about Ukrainian food, borscht and Veronica. I, I do love it. I wish I could have some right now, actually. Maybe I'll get some after this. BM says, I really enjoy your videos and thank you for being uh, out and eyes and ears on the ground. The lib media in the US is too busy trying to make Brandon look like the strong leader while hoping he starts World War Three. That is what is scary. Remember this, guys. Both sides want something. The U.S. wants an enemy of Russia. They want to make Joe Biden look like he's a hero for saving the war. Uh, but but you got to remember Putin. I got to walk around. It's too cold to stand in one spot. Putin. He wants something too, right? So how do we figure out what's actually happening? I recommend having a mix of media, all right? Watch both sides of news. Don't just watch Fox, also watch CNN. Don't just watch, you know, RT, watch BBC, watch DW, watch, you know, watch a couple of them. And then most importantly, walk the actual, watch the actual talks that are from the actual leaders itself, who, if they're saying Putin, you know, said this crazy thing. Watch the talk and see what the context is. Don't just watch the the clip from one little, you know, one little side, right? So here's the thing is, as much as I hate watching news, because so many people kept asking me about this, I was like, All right, I gotta, I guess I gotta be at least informed. So... I watched the talk. I watched all the, my hated news channels. I read the articles. I talked to people here. I talked to my embassy friends. I talked to people on the ground, what's going on. And this is the best information I can give you of what's actually happening, how people are feeling here. People are worried, man. It sucks. Like, it, like people are smiling. They're out, right? So it looks like they're having fun. But this is the thing, Ukrainians are strong people. This is what I love about Ukrainians so much, is they've been dealing with conflict for basically their whole lives. And they understand that life isn't easy, but they persevere, 
they work hard, they get through it. They know that there's always going to be hardships. And this makes people very, very strong, you know? So right now, even though it seems like half the people I know have left, I mean, this city officially has 3 million people, but I think actually has closer to 5 million people unofficially because uh, not everyone's actually registered to live here. It's not like students or tourists or expats. You know, I'm officially registered now, but I wasn't the first to it. Two, two years that I was coming here. So there's still a ton of people. It doesn't feel any real difference, you know, here today than it does normally. But this is Kiev, guys. We're very far from Donetsk and Lubansk, right? So why, why does Putin want to, I don't know, what was his words? Uh, to recognize the autonomous region of Donetsk and Lubansk? Basically, he's very smart choosing his words because if he said, we're going to take it and make it part of Russia, then the West would have to respond because then it will be war. But by him saying, we're just going to come do some peacekeeping because these guys want to be autonomous. They want to be, you know, not part of uh, Ukraine anymore. They want to be their own region. They, they have to respond. Uh, 83VZ, wow. Thank you so much, buddy. Johnny, are the Ukrainian people aware of how the U.S. is pushing so hard for war? Yes. Uh, president Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, keeps saying on the news, please stop pumping it up. Because first he was saying it was premature. It didn't need to be that early. And they were just blowing everything up way more than, than needed. And here's the problem with that. Is it causes a panic and it destroys their economy. The Ukrainians, the economy has really struggled these past couple months. Actually, the last eight years since the war, but really hard in the last couple months because of the uncertainty. You know, investors don't want to invest in Ukraine right now because it's unstable. Uh, tourists don't want to come, which I understand why. But people are also, you know, changing money out of Grivna, the local currency, and putting it into US dollars or euros because they're afraid of the, the currency. So it's destabilized the currency. It's dropped a lot. Oh, it went from 27. Hello. It dropped from like 27 uh, to like close to 29. Or so it's a big. It's a big difference. It's a. It's a big move. That's like. It, it's like I don't know what, what percentage that is. Let's, let's say like a seven percent move Ukraine. or something. Hello. How are you? No problem. Yeah. Is Ukraine. Yes. Uh huh. You, you. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Okay. Yeah, good. Okay, have a good day. Good, 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 good. Okay, uh, I don't know who that guy was, but I think he's a little bit drunk, so I'm not going to interview him. <laughs> so, I, mean, I guess he said East has a problem, but Ukraine doesn't, which actually is, is actually on point, right? Where if you are in Donetsk, it's bad. It's scary. But it has been for eight years. Now, if anything, at least there's some kind of resolution. It might not be in the way that Ukraine wants it, 
or the people want it, but at least there's going to be some kind of change. Hopefully, it'll be in the beneficial way for Ukraine. But what's bad, what has been bad these last eight years was no change and kind of this weird limbo zone. Like imagine if you're living in this war-torn country or, or area in the country and for seven years there's been a ceasefire, but it's been, it's been crap. There's been no infrastructure. There's been no stability. And either everybody, like most people left, all the people that could leave, they left. So the only people who stayed, the people who can't afford to leave, or they're too old, Imagine living there. That would suck. And the thing is, a lot of people don't also realize this. Donetsk, even though it sounds like this crappy war-torn area, which it kind of is now, it used to be a very nice, high-class area. It was kind of like where like the elite would go on vacation. You know, it's kind of near the sea, near Crimea. So it used to be a nice area. So imagine like Malibu or something, or Florida, like getting taken over by Mexico or Cuba or something. And then but then they didn't finish the job or they didn't, you know, there wasn't a clear winner. So then for seven years, you know, Miami was just kind of just in this bad zone with no infrastructure and, you know, half the people left or 80% of the people left and there was, there's just nothing happening. What would be better is if they solved the issue and I don't know which way it's going to go. I don't know if it's going to be, towards you know ukraine or if russia is going to make it autonomous like they did with so many other regions like for example transnistria uh somewhere i've been which is on literally on the border of Moldova and ukraine another thing that people have probably never heard of i don't know if any of you have even heard of transnistria or Prinistrovia, as they call it but it's basically a region or almost like a city with like half a million people, so it's not a small place, that is on the border between Ukraine and Moldova. So what you're seeing is the same play from 2014. And world leaders are responding to what Putin is saying. He's pretty much saying, I acknowledge all the territories that want to break away from Ukraine. How do you destroy an elephant? One bite at a time. Hmm. Here's what they have to say. Joining me now to break this all down and as the situation escalates, NBC News military analyst General Barry McCaffrey. He's a retired four-star general and a former member of the National Security Council and General Secretary of State Anthony Blinken about an hour ago officially canceled a meeting with Russia's foreign minister. Does that mean that hopes for a diplomatic solution are completely moot? Uh, probably not. I mean, uh, we very impressive day, it seemed to me, by both President Biden and Secretary Blinken. Uh, they're engaged. They've brought together NATO in a manner not seen in 20 years. Uh, they clearly are make, making uh, gestures of solidarity with the Eastern European NATO countries, very small U.S. military deployments. And they did uh, announce, articulate some serious sanctions. Certainly none of this is going to make any difference in the short run. It's very difficult to anticipate any possibility of reversing this military intervention in Ukraine. 
The next step is likely to be Russian armed forces confronting the Ukrainian military uh, elements, which are in contact with these separatist regimes. Putin has stated he's going to get both provinces. So we have some bad days ahead. President Biden's doing the sensible thing in the face of this aggression. So speak to what Putin's goal here is. You mentioned those two regions that he announced uh, today um, are, are effectively uh, sovereign, Russian, part of Russia. And his goal here has um, essentially, well, he's articulating that the uh, expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe is why he is doing this and why he feels this is an existential threat to Russia. But is that true? Well, I think Putin is driven by a personal need for his legacy in history to be that he brought Ukraine back into Mother Russia. There are other targets he has in mind. Georgia, clearly, Romania, Poland, the Baltic states. He would like to recreate that Soviet empire that came apart uh, under the communist regime. But but Ukraine's a, a special case. Uh, I do not think this is over. At the end of the day, he will not stop aggression. You've got 190,000 troops assembled. They're not leaving Belarus. In probably two or three days, he could encircle and or capture the capital of Kiev. But we have a major military crisis in the heart of Europe. In terms of the response to that aggression and the military crisis you're speaking about, are the economic sanctions, at least that first piece that was announced today, is that enough? And will it be enough in response to these aggressive actions by Vladimir Putin? Well, I think it was the right move to make. Uh, we don't have a lot of cards here that make much sense. We've got to stand behind Article 5 defense responsibilities with the 30 nations of NATO. That's clear. Uh, when it comes to these initial... What's clear is we don't have to do shit. NATO don't pay their dues. We don't have to do shit. Again, I repeat, we don't have to do shit. They're not paying their dues. We don't need to do diddly squat. Fuck NATO. Why are we the ones that are going to do it? The fact that he said that Biden's uh, perfect and what he does. Blinken shouldn't even be involved in the, Oh, my gosh. The amount of crap the Ukrainians have on Blinken is disgusting. I mean, I've got stuff on Blinken from the Hunter Biden laptop. Again, we don't have to do anything because they're not paying their dues. So tough noogies. But who's invading who? Huh. The way the plan is and the way the script goes is they will have their debt wiped out and the EU will suffer as they try to take control of uh, Turkey. Uh, poor Erdogan will be eliminated. Soon thereafter, Putin will resign. This is how it goes. Deals were already made, you know, and then everyone will say President Trump was the only president that had no war during his term. None whatsoever. Sweet script. All sanctions. It'll make people uncomfortable. Uh, uh, but in the long run, the only thing that Russia has that anyone cares about is nuclear weapons and oil and natural gas. So if we want to confront Russia, we got to turn off in some way the income they get from $100 a barrel oil. That means ramp up production of U.S. energy and Saudi Arabian. So that's the next step for the U.S. to consider. You mentioned uh, Russia and, and how they have 
uh, amounts, a certain amount of natural gas and oil. They're not central to the global economy, but as you said, important in terms of energy. How is that going to be felt by the average American here at home? I'm sure they're turning on the news this evening and saying, war, Russia, what? Why should I care about this? How could it impact everyday life here? Well, of course, Russia does have enormous uh, reserves of oil and natural gas as the number three global provider. Uh, the price of oil is globally fungible. It's $100 a barrel in Japan, Eastern Europe, and the United States at a given time. It's all the same international trading uh, market. Uh, so, you know, I think that if we try and cut off Russia from the global economy, there's nothing they make that we care about. Nor Oop, let's stop right there. I mean, he's <laughs> his statements are pretty bold for a full star. Are you kidding? So first of all, he said that Biden needs to ramp up energy production and so does Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has less than 32 years left on the clock at the rate they were going. If they ramp it up, you got to slice that in half and they only got 15 years of oil. Stop it. Stop. But, you know, for Biden to ramp up oil production, that means he has to go back on all the shit he did in his first month, meaning he's got to take away all the toys from China. How's that going to work out? Then he's got to open up the Keystone Pipeline. His own will eat him alive. You see how you put people in a box? One by one, if you take a 40,000 foot view, you see the box and I would totally urge people to look at my first publications, how I explain the intricacies of the region that is the target region. Because let's say Ukraine is liberated piece by piece. The EU is now at the mercy of Russia and Erdogan does not want to cross Russia because the EU uh, has to jump in and help. Uh, but I did tell you that Turkey is the second largest power of NATO, second to the United States. But what also have I told you? Oh, so interesting. In 2018 and 2019, President Trump sent a shit ton of weapons, helicopters, and technology to Greece and created a brand new base and migrated a lot of them from Frankfurt. Pompeo's visit to Greece was the only one not aired. So weird. And the Greeks, they can't stand the Turks. And guess what? They're part of NATO. There's no freaking way on the planet that they will support them. See, it all comes back to eons old wars. So as the EU starts to put pressure on Turkey, Erdogan will disappear. Turkey will collapse. Russia will come down and disperse the lands back to the originators. Armenia will get their land. Greece will get their land. And oh boy, suddenly the European Union has zero control over the pipelines from Iran. See, it, everything starts to fit together. Now, it's not as easy or simple or, or as pedestrian as I'm explaining it. I'm trying to give you the gist of the idea so that you can understand. The scripts have already been written. The deals have already been made. Can you see it now? Can you see who is really at the disadvantage? In Western Europe. But it will have an impact on energy prices. There are some other aspects like titanium that may affect us. But there'll be a disruption that will clearly negatively affect 
our economy also. And that's a cost that President Biden has to take into account. In terms of those negative consequences, many of the sanctions have targeted, you know, rich oligarchs in Russia who have assets all over the world. In terms of the regular, ordinary Russian, um, how do those sanctions uh, that are targeting those oligarchs end up trickling down and impacting somebody living their life in Russia um, and having to deal with the impact on the economy within Russia? How, 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 how is it going to impact? See, this is where they're pandering to, you know, it sounds like they're desperate for support. <laughs> See how that works? All right, we got lot Let's just focus on one more thing before we switch gears. Let's look at Saki. Let's look at what Saki has to say today and look at her concerns. Standing federal payments necessary to complete their terms. Uh, with that, Zeke, why don't you kick us off and we will get around to as many people as possible. And I realize it's already late. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Um, how you walked through the, uh, the events in the last 24 hours last night, a senior administration official uh, on a background call with reporters brief uh, a brief on the administration's response and said that Russia's occupied these regions since 2014 and that Russian troops moving into the Donbass would not in and of, uh, would not of its uh, would not itself be a new step and, and didn't use the word invasion this morning uh, the Deputy national security advisor said invasion the president is using invasion what changed in the last 24 hours what did you see on the ground that changed the US government's assessment of what is actually happening in these regions? Sure. Well, I'm not going to, I know this isn't exactly what you're asking, but just to set the precedent here, I'm not going to be confirming military movements uh, from the podium now or at any point, probably. Uh, but what I can tell you is what we looked at is the events of the last less than 24 hours, Zeke, right? And what we have seen is President Putin setting up a rationale to take more territory by force. What we're basing that on, uh, including the comments of the Deputy National Security Advisor this morning, and then the President's comments later in the afternoon, is a couple of things. One, uh, Vladimir Putin announced yesterday that he was basically planning to carve out a chunk of Ukraine by recognizing two regions of Ukraine as independent. He brazenly asserted these regions are no longer part of Ukrainian sovereign territory. Last night, he authorized uh, Russian forces to deploy into these regions. Today, he sought authorizations, authorization from the Duma for the Russian military to use force outside of Russian territory. And today, he asserted that these regions actually extend deeper into Ukraine, claiming larger areas currently under jurisdiction of the Ukrainian government. So what we're seeing there, and as for anybody who read or paid attention to his lengthy speech last night, is the rationale to go much further. That is what we are also watching very closely. And this for this combination of reasons, we see this as the beginning of a further invasion of Ukraine. But we look at and we assess over the course of a short period of time. But at right now, can you say whether or not the U.S. government believes that there's been additional deployments of Russian forces, active forces across the border into, into Ukraine that's been there for years, but additional forces? I'm not going to get into military uh, assessments of military movements from here. Uh, and then on a separate topic, the president, and we've talked about this as well, um, warned Americans in the last several weeks that they have to, they should be prepared to bear the cost of standing up for Ukraine's sovereignty. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of conversation about this, and I was hoping you could maybe speak to, to clarify this a little bit. Why should Americans, uh, you know, feel that they have to? Is, that is a cost that they should have to bear, and that should affect their lives. And how much should they be prepared for this, you know, geopolitical crisis to impact their day to day life? 
Well, I think what hopefully the American people who are tuning into this or have been tuning into this will see is that the president of the United States and, and his entire uh, national security apparatus have been rallying the world and standing up against the efforts of Russia to invade and take and carve out a chunk of another country for their own. Um, and that is the world is standing with the United States against the actions of President Putin. Now, why does that matter? I realize that's what you're asking me. Why does that matter to the American people? That should matter because that is a fundamental value that we as a country stand up for and we stand up against that type of action. That goes back to World War II uh, and, uh, and we have repeatedly throughout history been leaders in the world in rallying support for any efforts to seize uh, territory from another country. What the, when the president spoke to the American people last week, it was very important to him to be very direct and clear and straightforward with them about what this could mean uh, as we looked to what the impact of an invasion could mean uh, and also what the impact of sanctions could mean. And the fact that standing up for values uh, is not without cost, including in this case, uh, including potentially in this scenario. Now, as Dalip just conveyed, what the president has said to his national security team is he wants to leave no stone unturned. He wants them to take every step possible to uh, tap into the resources of global suppliers, uh, to present to him uh, any option that will reduce the impact on the American people. And even as he's looking at sanctions, he is taking that into account. But uh, this is about standing up for American values and making, and he wanted to make clear to them what impact that could have. Go ahead. Thank you, Jen. Um, given what Secretary Blinken just announced about his meeting with um, Lavrov on Thursday, is a summit between the president and Putin out of the question now? Well, we're never going to completely close the door to diplomacy, and I don't think uh, the, the Secretary of State did that either. But uh, just to build on what he just said, uh, diplomacy can't succeed unless Russia changes course. And as he said, it wouldn't be appropriate for him to have a meeting uh, with his counterpart um, at this point in time, Foreign Minister Lavrov. And it was always intended uh, that any engagement with President Putin would follow that. So at this point, that is uh, certainly not in the plans. And what would, what would it take to get that conversation back to the table, to reconsider um, a meeting between the two leaders? Well, de-escalation. That's what it would take. De-escalation de means moving troops. It means de-escalating from what the steps they continue to take on a daily basis appear to be. I'm going to mm -hmm. talk quickly. Yeah. Uh, how many uh, Supreme Court nominees has the president interviewed by this point? Um, <laughs> that was a wink. Um, uh, I appreciate your question. I understand, Weisha, why you're asking. Um, we are, of course, a very short period of time away from the end of the month of February. Uh, the president has not made a decision about who he's going to nominate, but I'm not still not going to get into details about the internal process. More to tell soon. Go ahead, Peter. Thank you, Jen. The president said in the spring that Pentagon generals had briefed him that the greatest threat facing America is global warming. Is that still the assessment that <laughs> we are facing down a potential cyber war with Russia? Well, I, I'll let me first say there is no, uh, well, we are always prepared uh, for any threat that any outside entity or country poses to the United States that relates to cyber or anything else. There is no current pending threat on uh, as it relates to cyber. Uh, in terms of the threats you're, you're touching on, that was a briefing from uh, the military. So I'd point you to them. And so as far as anybody watching who's seen the coverage, it's very, at times, distressing images of, of Russian 
military movements, the number one threat facing the country right now remains global warming. Well, Peter, I, I think it's important as we're all educating the public here to convey and reiterate the president has no intention of sending U.S. troops into Ukraine to fight in Ukraine. What we are doing is we are abiding by our obligations to our NATO allies and partners to ensure that they have the support and the resources uh, that they need. And that is our right and our obligation as the United States. Okay. And why do you guys think that sanctions are going to stop Putin if his goal ultimately is to redraw the map so it looks like it did 70 or 80 years ago. What sanction is going to stop him from doing that? Well, I, I think just to kind of reiterate maybe something you touched on there, for anyone who watched his speech last night, what he made clear in that speech is that he doesn't even necessarily or doesn't recognize the independence of Ukraine as a country. Uh, and that certainly gives us an indication of uh, where his intentions are at this point in time. Uh, sanctions can be a powerful tool. They have been in a lot of uh moments throughout history and what we view them as, uh, as or how we're viewing them Everybody. as we're starting high, as Dalip just conveyed uh, here uh, in terms of the significance and the severity of the sanctions that were announced today. Uh, yes, our intention is to have a deterrent effect and there are, uh, well, what they have done to date is completely uh, unacceptable. There are certainly far worse that could happen. What we want to do is prevent a large-scale invasion, death and destruction across Ukraine, devastation to the Ukrainian people. Everybody. And that what happens with sanctions, it's they work over time. They're not an end. Uh, they're not intended to max out at the beginning. They're long-lasting and sustainable, and they're intended to... It must really suck to have our job and have to lie like that. Well, I wanted to show you a snippet of Milo Yiannopoulos. I'm, I'm going to try to see if we can rip the whole video. But apparently he called Ali Akbar out, and I think I should share some of it. I hope that's the part of it. Let's see interprets history through the lens of themselves. We all have this egotistical times that we're living in are the most extraordinary that have ever occurred. And some people have had some good claims to that in the past. Maybe if you were living through the fall of Rome, perhaps if you were living uh, during the Industrial Revolution or you know, as, it, as it kicked off, you know, the, the industriousness of Adam Smith in Scotland. Uh, or maybe you... Were Let me try this again, because it's really sad. I want you guys to see his beautiful face. Um... I have to hop off and get on a call. Damn it. Where is it? There it is. Let's see. Let's see. See if this works. Nope. That's not going to work either. Let me try it another way. Maybe if I do it like that. <laughs> I really wanted to talk about Pluto, but we'll do that tomorrow. There's a whole thing about that. You know, is it a planet? Not a planet. Now it's a planet. Everyone said it's not a planet. And suddenly it's a planet again. I mean, I, it, it just doesn't make sense sometimes. You get so frustrated with this bullshit. You know, it is, it isn't. Um, but what's interesting is, is that, uh, you know, Milo Live called Ali Akbar out. And that was fascinating uh, because it's, it's important for people to know that, um, you know, Ali Akbar is a big problem. He called him Scammy Davis Jr. Um, he made it clear. And, you know, he likes, you know, young men. And there's a video that um, 
thought crimes actually found where he admits uh, being friends with a young boy. His uh, best friend was a young teenager. I guess maybe that guy, what's his face? That uh, Daniel Bostic must be very jealous of this young boy. But see, they learn. Uh, it's so terrible. Mm, oh, lordy, lordy. I end it with some tea, don't I? I end it with some tea. And this is why I've always been a Milo fan. He doesn't give a crap about what anyone says, and he seeks redemption in his own way. The fact that he's on the market for the ladies, I don't know. I mean, he's kind of hot, totally outspoken. I mean, so he's a bit feminine, but why not? He's, uh, I don't know. Biscuit seems to agree. Uh, <laughs> Biscuit seems to agree. I don't know. But, um... I thought maybe I could share some of this tea, and I'm hoping that it's in this video. Let's see. He interprets history through the lens of themselves. We all have this egotistical idea that uh, the times that we're living in are the most extraordinary that have ever occurred. And some people have had some good claims to that in the past. Maybe if you were living through the fall of Rome, perhaps if you were living uh, during the Industrial Revolution or you know, as, as it kicked off, you know, the, the industriousness of Adam Smith in Scotland, uh, or maybe you were living through unhappy times, the Reformation. Um, but now I think we have a reasonable claim to be living through one of those, if not the greatest. We talked about the fourth turning a little moment ago, one of Steve Bannon's favorite books. Um, the crust is cracking at this exact moment on the elites who run the world. They have for a long time had this sort of carapace around them. You know, like those bugs that are supposed to be able to, uh, cockroaches that are supposed to be able to survive a nuclear winter because they've got these, these, these nuclear resistant carapaces, their outer exoskeletons, right? Um, well, for a long time, it looks as though the global elite had something like that adamantium exoskeleton. They were just never going to be unseated. But the crust is cracking because as ever, the devil overplays his hand. Satan always overplays his hand. And whatever dark occult forces are fueling the people who rule over us, they are once again overplaying their hand. You see it with January 6th. The people who were at January 6th are not going to have a happy time in the next 10 years, but the rest of the country is now awake. Even if they don't admit it, even if they don't realize it, even if they don't want to say it, they might not be Republicans, they might hate Trump, but they saw that and they noticed. And they know that it could be a different administration in power tomorrow. And in just the same way as just happened in Canada, I mean, my goodness, the trucker thing is even worse in many respects. The crust is cracking and everyone can see them now for what they are. It's, it's a mask slip moment in which we're beginning to see the sort of hideous, desiccated gargoyle demon faces behind these happy, clappy, anodyne newsreaders on ABC. We're starting to see that in celebrities too, aren't we? Whether it's a lack of adrenochrome or they're just really, really stressed. Look at how old celebrities look compared to 2019. Look at how drawn and haggard and gray and practically translucent their skin is. Look at how haggard the people who rule over us are suddenly starting to look. And you realize that they know, as we know, that the crust is cracking. Well, he did call out Ali Akbar. It wasn't in that clip, but I'll share the link. And he's right. Everyone can see now. And do not underestimate that sight. And not everyone learns or walks or sees or hears at the same pace that you do. You should just be able to feel it. Totally feel it. That you're winning. It's in the air. I can feel it coming in the air. 
I can feel 